Hey guys, what's up? It is week 272 and I have a bunch of reviews for you. Um, the first one up is going to be um, from Arrow Video. This is a new 4K release of Flatliners from 1990. Um, this was one of these ones that was kind of a staple in the early 90s. I watched this one a bunch of times. Uh, it's directed by Joel Schumacher who directed The Lost Boys. He also did Falling Down, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. Now Joel Schumacher, you know, people, I don't know how popular of a director, how beloved Joel Schumacher actually is. Um, I've always, you know, been kind of, I guess, hot and cold with the movies. I mean, the Batman movies are, they're whatever. They're colorful. They're silly. They are what they are. A lot of people hate them. But uh, The Lost Boys is one that I've always had a fondness for. And um, Falling Down has, you know, it came at the right time. I haven't watched it in years. But so Flatliners, this one I hadn't, like I said, I had not watched in years. And I always liked it then. So re-putting it in, I was kind of excited to check it out. I mean, it has a, a, a gangbusters cast. Um, some of the actors, you know, obviously on the way up, um, uh, for sure. Um, some some were like established, but they were maybe a little downtrodden a little bit. Not not too many hits at the time, whatever. But uh, the main cast is uh, five people um, are kind of the main cast here. You have Julia Roberts. Right, this is before Pretty Woman, if I'm not mistaken. So Julia Roberts wasn't like the huge star she obviously became. Um, then you have Kiever Sutherland, who was just in Lost Boys a couple years before and was steadily working after that. Um, Kevin Bacon, who I guess they said on the the special features on a down slope, but he also did Tremors this year. I don't know how big of a hit or if this one came out before or after Tremors. We have Oliver Platt, who's in a slew of stuff, and uh, Billy Baldwin. Um, the actual Baldwin brother I'm least familiar with, but he's in stuff like Curdled and Backdraft and everything like that. So essentially, these guys are all pre-med pre uh, students, and they all have a kind of like a dark side or a strange side to them. Julie Roberts is kind of obsessed with death. She's always asking patients about you know their, their near-death experiences and all this kind of stuff. So they figure some weird kind of the, the science of this stuff never actually works out right how you figure it out but they figure out a way to somehow um that they want to know if there's going to be a sign before you know when you die what happens all this kind of stuff and they want to you know be under for a certain amount of time so they kind of have these chemicals in a way to bring people back it's it's a really complex weird situation and i said like the science of science fiction like horror films you're always like oh this fucking shit works they're just hoping the audience doesn't really look into it so essentially is what they do they start to like put themselves uh, you know down under for x amount of time and they have this competitive nature and everything like that and when they're under they start to have these weird kind of visions and later on these visions start to bleed into their everyday life um, and you see the backstory of all these characters they all have you know a kind of a haunted past or something in their subconscious that's kind of haunting them and everything like that and it starts to leak into the real world and all this kind of stuff so um, they all range in in what they have you know Billy Baldwin's like a womanizer and uh, Julia Roberts has this thing with her father Kevin Bacon has regret from being a bully and uh, Oliver Platt actually doesn't go under but Kiefer Sutherland has the most extreme one and the most horror kind of related one. I always remembered his story because the dog and all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of had like a certain charm about it. Now, um, yeah, there is some like messaging and stuff in here that I like religious iconography that looks good, but I don't know if the message ever comes together because it's such a strange kind of mixture of, you know, like science and religion and stuff. I don't know if like their, their point comes across well, or, or you can even decipher the point exactly for me at least. But as far as like the set designs, uh, come across they're they're really well done. Like, 
like the composition is well done, especially like the sets where you have Kiefer Sutherland walking around like a train station or something like that. And you have the pillars in there in the background. It's just really like, I don't know, the production design is is something to kind of like uh, be in awe of. And I feel like Joel Schumacher was always really professional and that kind of stuff. I mean, he did the remake of Phantom of the Opera, which I'm not, uh, it's not my thing, but it definitely looks like a very unique film. In a funny way, Joel Schumacher is kind of like an auteur. You know, his movies have a certain look to them. They have a certain style to them and all that. And it really shows in Flatliners. The 4K looks amazing. Like, it looks and sounds amazing. That was uh, just kind of took me back how good this movie looked. Like I said, it's a, it was an expensive movie, as far as I can tell, a very professionally well-done movie. And at the end of the day, I ended up liking it still. You know, um, it was definitely like a, fa- a favorite. Me and my brother would always watch growing up. Uh, this time around, I think that it works well. Um it's not uh, it's not as beloved for me as Lost Boys, um, and and uh, but it still works. This thing is loaded with features. I put I, I had the features playing all day one day and, and checked them all out. So let's see what I remember here. Um, before we get into the features, though, it is uh, HDR compatible, of course. Lossless DTS HD 5.1 and 2. Point surround soundtracks, um, and there we go. Brand new audio commentary by critics Brian Reisman and Max Avery, and I believe they go over like the relationships that some of the actors were having. Uh, in the movie, I believe it's what Kevin Bacon and Julie Roberts have like a connection, but it's actually Kiefer Sutherland and Julie Roberts who were dating at the time. They go over all this. They're like experts on this movie and all the actors and stuff at the time. The Conquest of Our Generation, a brand new video interview with screenwriter uh, Peter Filardi. And I think that's where like a lot of that, like the religious touches and all that stuff came in there. It was good to see like, because I wanted to know if you know who is whose input and stuff there was. Because um, I believe they the, the people actually perform like this kind of experiment in an old church, which gives it a nice backdrop and all that kind of stuff. Visions of a brand new video interview with the director of photography, uh, John DeBont, and chief lighting technician Edward Ayer. And you got to remember that uh, John DeBont, uh, I, I'm mispronouncing his name, but this guy's done a lot of good movies and done some like top notch cinematography. So that's probably another reason why the movie looks so freaking good. So. It was nice to hear him talk about it. Um, Hereafter, a brand new video interview with first assistant director John Kretschmann, Kretschmere, Restoration, a brand new video interview with production designer Eugenio Zanetti and art director Larry Lundry. And these two definitely deserve a big round of applause for what they did. Atonement, a brand new video interview with composer James Newton Howard and um, orchestrator Chris Borman. And it is a big, big, big score too. Like this is a big budget movie, right? And it comes across, it's kind of like a, you know, everything is kind of like glorious about it, if that makes sense. A lot of the establishing his shots and stuff they do have a halloween scene in there too make sure they get that dressing for character a brand new interview with costume designer susan becker and then we have the theatrical trailer image gallery reversible sleeve so it looks and sounds great in 4k and it's loaded with features so if you are a fan of the movie i would really recommend picking up the 4k um and if you're interested in a lot of the actors in here you know you can see the trajectory of their careers and all this and this is just a it's a strange cast like to get all these people in the same movie together at that time was just kind of like um you know it just was kind of an amazing thing and a cool thing too because I, I can't think of any like seeing these actors interact like Kevin Bacon and Keith Sutherland is pretty crazy and they all have their own distinct personalities and stuff you know Oliver Platt's like the quirky guy like I said and like Billy Baldwin is like the show and, I, and his acting is really strange to me in this like everyone else to me comes across fairly solid um, although you know Julia Roberts segment seems to be a little repetitive although it's nothing she's doing in terms of acting it's just you know the, the script writing or something just slight slight um, 
kind of a, a, a nag on that. But uh, uh, Billy Baldwin, such a strange character's performance is really bizarre as well. You know, um, like I said, you know, I, I just got I, not to be negative, but I'm a fan of, you know, some of the other Baldwins more than Billy Baldwin. But that's OK. Uh, yeah. So check out Flatliners if you're a big fan. The Arrow release looks great. Um, and it's crazy. It's on 4K. And I mean, I know a lot of people might be like, oh, I don't remember loving Flatliners, but it's visually it's an amazing movie, too. And I enjoy it. It's good stuff. And uh, 1990 was a strange year. Um, it's kind of an underrated year for horror films. I know people badmouth the 90s a lot, but when you compare it, I mean, you got Tremors in there, you got Night of the Living Dead uh, remake, you got Jacob's Ladder, you got Misery, you got a strong list of horror films, and then you have some crazy off-the-wall ones like Ghoulies 3. I mean, it's not on the caliber of those other ones, but still. Uh, Frankenhooker. You got some good stuff in 1990, let's be honest. Okay, the next one up is also from Arrow Video, and this is The Sacred Spirit. Um, yeah, this is a genre film. I think it technically counts as, you know, this year if anybody's making a top 10. Uh, not necessarily a horror film, kind of like a dark, dark comedy with a sci-fi tinge to it um, and a crime tinge. Um, I was really impressed with this movie. Um, it starts off very kind of quirky and awkward in a lot of ways, but uh, it feels grounded um, as well. And it has these moments of comedy because it is like jet black comedy, but also like scenes of sadness and maybe so sad it's funny or so funny it's sad or stuff like that, if, if that makes sense. But it's also a disturbing subject matter here. So we have these two kind of stories going on at the same time. We have, um, the, is his name Eureka? I want to make sure I get his name right uh, here. Jose Manuel, because uh, he, he's like the major character in here. And he is kind of a, you know, he's he's kind of a, a slightly, you know, like chubby kind of guy. And all he does is he works in the shop. It seems to be possibly family owned. And that's all he does. And after he does that, he kind of goes to like this UFO, a UFO kind of like place where him and like four or five other people meet together and they discuss it. And there's like a professor that's behind the whole thing and they're very serious about it. And um, as you know, kind of quiet and, and, and you know, um, more like kind of a introvert as he is a lot of the other characters come across even more you know eccentric than him you know and, and they're just kind of bizarre and there's a lot of comedy elements in that with them talking about stuff like that and uh besides that storyline is going on there is um this is a mexican film or south american i, I hopefully i'm i'm not I was speaking poorly here, Spanish. I am such a dumb dumb when it comes to this stuff. I really should have looked it up. Um, so, I, but anyways, I believe it's Spain. Sorry, it's a Spanish film for sure because they're talking about you know the other parts of Europe uh, and everything like that. My bad. So, um, it just came to me. You know, you get old, you forget things sometimes. So, uh, the other storylines going on is about um, you know, kid. Uh, this this little girl disappeared. Um, and her mother's been looking for. We find out that Jose is, you know, the brother the with uh, the the missing um, the the uncle of this missing girl, and they, she has a twin sister and all this kind of stuff. And the stories start to slowly intersect. And before you realize what's going on, you know, it starts to get like this disturbing subject matter. And there's a lot of you know people preying on people and stuff like that. And it just um, it, it really actually kind of was like one of those moments where like uh, when you found out what was going on, you like you didn't want to like you didn't want to believe it and. You you felt really horrible about the situation and like if i go further i'm going to spoil it but uh the movie is like very bright um it, it's filmed mostly during day and the camera work's really well done um there, there's some like featurettes here and they point out some really nice camera work and what it does and what it's supposed to mean and that helps elevate this movie and i really enjoyed it like i said there's points when i was ungodly sad 
had. Um, and I always, I never knew exactly where the story was going to go or how it was going to unfold. I knew there'd be a connection, but I didn't know where the connection was going to come from, how it worked, all this kind of stuff. And they really did a, a great job with it on that aspect. Um, as far as the special features are concerned, and boy, there's a lot of them. There's actually two discs. Uh, the second disc is Domestic Sci-Fi, the short films of Chema Garcia Ibera. Um, um, and it's Attack of the Robots from the Nebula 5, um, 7 Minutes, Sundance uh, Festival Award winner, Proto Particles, um, Mystery, um, Uranus, um, tons of stuff. Disco Shines, um, The Golden Legend, um, all these are award-winning short films. And then besides that, we also have Behind the Eye of uh, Horus, a visual essay about the use of surveillance and um, Egyptology in the Sacred Spirit by Alexandra Heller Nicholas. And I was super impressed with this. Like, they point out all this kind of stuff and this mythology and how it ties into the story and all the characters. And because this story involves a lot of alien stuff or people that believe in aliens and you're, and it's just all there. And, uh, it's also really smart how that stuff comes together, even if it's, you know, like, cause there's like a psychic aspect too with the mother and stuff like that. So, you know, as much as it is grounded, there, there is elements of this there and around it. You could interpret it a lot of different ways, I guess. Um, and then we also have Pyramid Scheme, a visual essay examining conspiracy, class, and capitalism in the Sacred Spirit by Josh Nelson. Also absolutely adore this. Again, it's breaking down the structure and class and all this stuff. These were both, I watched them back-to-back. Sometimes I mix up but which one's saying what. But I was actually like, this movie is so much deeper than at face value. And you can see like it's there, but she's just like, sometimes you just need somebody smarter than you to kind of like lay it out for you in, in an elegant way like that. And they both do that. Domestic science fiction interview with writer-director Chima Garcia Ibera, behind-the-scenes fort, short featurette shot during production. Um, Ilche Vision, a series of six location reports about the making of the film, hosted by actress Lorana Inglesias, in character as Esther uh, Armagal, presenter of the Sacred Spirit's fictional t- local TV show. Uh, promotional videos and the use of the characters of Sacred Spirit talk about themselves on cut TV clips. There's like a news broadcast at the end, which plays a part in the movie. And it's always back there. But anyways, I really recommend this. If you like like crime or sci-fi or just dark comedies or just kind of um, awkward kind of movies, I, I really like this. And the lead performance in here is tremendous. Great stuff. Um, I thought he was absolutely uh, phenomenal. And although, you know, the reveal and stuff can make you think different of the character, you still have a genuine sympathy for him. Okay, the next up is one from Visual Vengeance. This is their third release, and this is L.A. Age Jabber. That's right, L.A. Age Jabber, a.k.a. The Jabber. So um, this one right here. This one I actually covered for 1994, and it was a crummy VHS rip. It was hard to, you know, it was on, like, YouTube and stuff like that. And I was like, man... I am so, like, baffled that this movie got made. I'd really like to, you know, have some background on it, you know, see where the filmmakers were coming from, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it was 1994, so AIDS was a terrifying thing. I think this, they started making this movie in, like, 1990, even earlier than that, 93, 90, like, 92, 93, whatever. You know, started in 93, finished 94, something like that. But, um, so, so it's, so it's pretty crazy. And the only other movie I could think of that was like uh, a couple movies from 94 had another like AIDS movie references and stuff like that, but they were Asian films. Fatal Encounter, um, was uh, kind of had that element of a genre film, had the AIDS story in there and love, uh, minus zero equal infinity also had it, which is a Japanese film. So as far as like SOV movies, this is an SOV film, of course. Um, and th- this kind of concept here is pretty crazy. So essentially what we have here is this kind of young, angry man who, doesn't feel well but one day so he goes to a doctor the doctor tells him i've done some blood work and you have hiv you have aids and um at this time there was obviously no cure there's not treatment was not very effective all this kind of stuff so he starts to think he's he's got a he's 
got massive anger issues and he's just performance is one of these unhinged performances where he's always screaming and always intent uh intense and just on the on the edge all the time and it's not exactly like unintentionally humorous but it's just so crazy that you kind of have to laugh it's just insane it's a it's a bonkers ass performance so um, i mean like there's a clip in here where he's screaming at a social worker who's trying to help him and he says lady i can't do it. i got aids <sighs> and he just screams it and it's just like boy so he decides to um basically start taking his blood and using it as a weapon this causes like a major panic or whatever at first the uh, cops there's two cop characters that they fall throughout the movie technically three cop characters um that are trying to like keep it on the down low because they don't want this all, whole thing blowing up and causing everybody to go nuts and everything like that but there's like a media reporter in here who gets wind of it and then basically everybody knows about the la age jabber so you know uh you know all this stuff kind of goes crazy and people get paranoid and whatnot and a lot of the movie is police procedural where you're seeing the cops kind of interact with each other they do have a weird moment in in the film where clearly an actor just kind of quit or couldn't do the movie anymore because it was shot over a long time and they just just they, they write them off in a really forced way which is like almost comical to be honest but uh yeah the ending twist really doesn't make any sense unless you just have absolutely no fate in any doctor testing any blood at all that's all I'll leave it at that I don't want to spoil the absolute ending or anything like that unless they're just sending it to the same person to test all of them they were a complete fuck up uh that could very well be it I guess but it's just kind of weird that they wouldn't I doubt they would send all those different samples to the same person to test or whatnot so um, yeah, so there is features on here. So I did get a lot of the background here. And um, at first you, you look and you're like, this director only directed this movie, but he was involved in a handful as an actor and helped on other things, worked with like Jackie Kong and all this kind of stuff there, worked with Fred Owen Ray. So, you know, he had a background in film and he uh, obviously loved movies and everything and he wanted to go make his own. And that's definitely kind of a, a crazy idea here. So as far as the special features are concerned, there's a decent amount watched all these. Um, this is uh, our is an SD version. Remember, it's not from film or anything like that. So it looks better than the crummy version on YouTube, but it is an SOV. There's a directions introduction to the movie. Then we have a lethal injection, the making of L.A. Age Jabber. This was good to hear him talk about the movie, how it came together, and how he kind of approached it. Because you, you hear L.A. Age Jabber in 94, you're like, this is just a straight-up exploitation film. And in a way, it is. You know, the exploitation of an idea or something like that to get asses in seats. But he mentions how much poorly he could have handled it. He could have made this character a homosexual character and stuff like that. But he, he didn't want to, you know, become come across as overly offensive or anything like that. Um, which you can kind of respect in a, in a way, like, you know what I mean? Because when you hear the title, you think, oh, my God, they're just going to go completely insane with this thing. So then 2021 Los Angeles Locations Tour. Then we have Interview with Blood Diner director Jackie Kong, which was nice. She's very uh, intelligent. She directed stuff, Blood Diner, The Bean. Um, and she talks about working with him in this movie and stuff like that. And uh, I, I like what she has to say about it. She's very, you know, blunt. Growing up on set, Justin Gatteris, who is actually the son of the director, he has a small role in this. And then what else do we have? Actress Joy um, Yorada interview. Um, she, I believe she plays the prostitute in the beginning or she plays the police officer. I'm not 100% familiar. Cinematographer Rick Braddock interview. Talks about them switching from 16, um, I believe, to so, the, the shooting on tape. Actor Gene Webler interview. Liner notes by Tony Strauss of Wang Chop Magazine photo gallery. And then we have LA Age Jabber trailer. We also have a commentary um, and all this kind of stuff. So this movie's wild. If nobody's ever seen it, I, I 
I, I feel like a lot of people probably never have seen this. But um, I actually like the slipcover here. I, I prefer the uh, in cover. That's pretty awesome, to be honest. Um, it also kind of kind of reminds me of another AIDS-related horror movie. Um, would be City and Panic, where um, and, and another one would be Unspeakable by Chad Farron. Um, these movies both, or is it Unspeakable? Um, I think Unspeakable has that aspect, or is that the short film he did um, before? Um, before unspeakable anyways i'm just thinking of uh, age related horror films or genre films and there's a couple out there this one is uh probably the most explicit in title for sure i mean some of the acting ranges of course you know quality and sound and video and that and like they obviously filmed it over a long period of time so like when it comes to like characters just disappearing and stuff and like kind of comical moments of dialogue it happens or just people going and stuff that is not technically accurate it's definitely here um not really any nudity or you know sleaze to speak of but somebody jabbing a bunch of people around LA with uh, AIDS infected needle is sleazy enough, right? Okay, the next one is from 88 Films, and uh, this is another Shaw Brothers flick, and this is Marshall Club. Um, yeah, and this one I had not seen. Uh, who, who directed this one? Oh, uh, Lar Kar Lang, um, Legendary Weapons of China. He actually does the intro in here and kind of comes out and like drops some knowledge about, you know, basically context and all this kind of stuff. So this one's later, I think 80s, 80, 81. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, I mean, the Shaw Brothers made movies a lot longer than uh, I thought, to be honest. So, okay, what we have here is Gordon Liu is, uh, is the main character in here, but there's a bunch of familiar faces. Like, you know, the Shaw Brothers movies only use about like 30, 40 different people right kind of like the italian genre films you see the same like 50 60 people in all of them so this one here i mean uh the plot is fairly uh similar to a lot of other plots but uh when you watch these you look at the cast you look at the fighting you look at the set pieces all that kind of stuff and that's here so um there's basically three schools uh three martial arts schools that are kind of like the main characters the main focal point here we have two that are very friendly with each other, and then we have one that's kind of an outliner. Uh, and that one, basically, they're the rich ones, and they're the the guy, the master's son is a dick. He always causes problems with you know the other master's sons, all this kind of stuff, right? So during like the traditional kind of like uh, there's like a dragon thing where they show like off the dragon and does all these moves. The uh, the asshole son starts to do these inappropriate things, which are a huge sign of disrespect. And it's caused this big brawl between all of them and everything like that. And throughout the movie, basically, they have just trouble with the with this gang all the time. The son's always playing a fast one. And the master is also really shitty. Um, but the two main characters in Gordon Liu and, and I what's the other character's name, the actor's name I can't think of. But anyways, they're just kind of like have these moments where they're both kind of goofy one of them is definitely has like you know more i guess transgressions he likes to go to the brothel and impress the ladies and you know get a freebie and gordon lou is just like much more respectful and after he kind of gets humbled in the beginning of the film he kind of shies away from that stuff but you know this causes a lot of problems for his friend um and the son of one of the other masters so essentially what happens is he he gets beat up by a, a visiting master who's from the um i believe the north and uh, this guy's coming down to learn a bunch of different martial arts, and he's going to the other school. And he's kind of a complex, different type character in this movie. He's like, although he's a bad guy, technically, he has a lot of respect, and he doesn't have all the stories, he doesn't have all the details and everything like that. So a lot of the fight scenes are really entertaining. There's a lot of big groups of people fighting, a lot of couple, three or four people taking on, like, crowds in the theater. And uh, the the most uh, impressive, I would say, is there's, like, this small little alleyway at the very end, and two people fight in that alleyway, and you see, like, 
like the camera from above. That's really fun stuff. And it's also quirky and almost like slapsticky in times, you know, characters getting in a fight and acting like they're really tough. And then when they walk away, they'll like be like, oh man, I got like, you know, that kind of comedic beats. Um, and also the, the commentary points out, there's a couple commentaries on here. The commentary points out this is one of the rare, you know, Shaw Brothers films where no one actually dies. And there's a couple like that. It's like no real gore, no blood. It's kind of lighthearted in a lot of ways. The people that are hurt, they recover. You know, it's like a sign of respect. It's almost on the level of like, you know, uh, more like the friendly martial arts movies that came out in the 90s for kids. Although it's it's better choreographed than a lot of that stuff. Um, and I enjoyed it for the most part. It's pretty good. It's not my favorite Shaw Brothers movies. I lean more towards like the Five Venoms or the Crippling Avengers or something like that. Those ones I just thought were excellent. And, and some of their horror output is just bonkers as well. But as far as the special features are concerned, we have um, commentary with Asian cinema expert Frank Jin and actor and martial artist Michael Wirth, supplemental audio commentary with Asian expert Frank Jin, instructors of death, grindhouse presentation. So you can watch this in English or Chinese. Um, and they took the Chinese uh, from an older print or something along that. Kung Fu and Dancing interview with actor Robert Mock. Born to be Bad interview with actor Johnny Wang. Disciples of Shaolin interview with actor with stuntman. Hung Sun Nam and Tony Tam, the right-hand man, interview with producer Lawrence Wong, Instructors of Death trailer, Hong Kong trailer. So yeah, it's a nice release. It looks good. It sounds good. And uh, this one's pretty enjoyable. And if you're trying to like get your kids into like some Kung Fu movies and you don't want, you're like, maybe you're a little strict. You don't want to watch something incredibly violent. Um, although they're, those are very tame by today's standards, this one might be one that can, you know, interest, you know, a little bit more because it has the slapstick comedic elements as well and also as a, a female fighter in here who does a lot of the fighting as well that's nice to see in here so it's not the case with every shaw brothers movie but uh yeah it's anyways it's got a lot of familiar faces um and it's got some cool like you know actual stuff that uh supposedly took you know not supposedly but it was a part of their culture as well so i enjoyed it it's pretty good stuff okay uh, this next one is a Patreon pick, and it's from Tom Brooker. And, uh, you know, he always gives me good stuff for the most part. And this movie is, most people enjoy it. It's just like one of these ones that's just not for me. It's The Devil All the Time. It's on Netflix. It has a great cast in here as Tom Holland, um, as uh, Alexander Sarsgaard, um, Robert Pattinson, tons of other people in here as well that uh, you'd recognize. I, I think that's, you know, I, I can't think of the actress's name. She does one of the better jobs in the film as well. So, yeah, it's just a bunch of people in here that I think you recognize. Um, she's uh, Winter Soldier's in here as well. I can't think of his name. So, Here's what it is. Um, this movie's a period piece. takes place over the 40s to the 60s, and it's like a small town in southern Ohio um, and West Virginia. It takes place over these two kind of areas. So we kind of open up with this narration. This is based on a book. The narrator's actually, you know, the writer of the book, which makes sense. It's like a sign of respect to have him do it. Um but uh, the narration is very obvious. It seems very just, it's just overdone. You know, it's like a show don't tell thing a lot of times. And this is just showing you, but then telling you on top of it. And it just seems really repetitive. And, and, and he's a writer. He's not an actor. He's not Morgan Freeman in here. So that was a little just distracting here. So the story basically follows about like two generations, a family over like 20, 30 years and everything like that. And uh, in the beginning, we have like Peter Sarsgaard. He's like uh, oh, Peter. It's uh, Alexander Sarsgaard. 
and he he witnesses something awful in war and it kind of haunts him and changes his look on life and everything like that um and he raises his son a tragedy strikes there's a lot of tragedy in this movie so much tragedy at the point you start to roll your eyes after a certain bit um i was about 20 minutes into this movie the first time i tried to watch it because it sounded like something i would enjoy years ago i mean right when it came out not years ago a couple years back and i was watching it and i made a joke i was like mama had a cancer up inside her and uh, this was before the mother was shown sick. And then the movie literally was like, Ma had a cancer. And I started laughing hysterically because it was so on the nose. It was just so obvious, so on the nose. And it felt like a bastardization. And it's probably supposed to be, you know, there are no good old days Americana. But also it's so on the nose about there are no good old days Americana. It becomes eye rolling. Like, just, I can't believe it. And I, I don't care much for the characters. It's it's very miscast. You know, whatever happened to the American character actor, you know, it's like, I feel like people like Warren notes and ben johnson are rolling in their graves watching netflix and wherever the hell they are right so i'm just saying like this it's just so funny like right this is like all these roles would be for people like that you know or even like it's just so weird to me like the it's just so poorly miscast and everybody is just overacting to a certain point and they're great actors great actors just terribly miscast so you have all these different storylines going on and everything like that some are better than others as far as i mean acting is concerned robert padson you know i watched the twilight movies for 22 shots it was terrible i i and those movies aren't made for me right so i should it's like take this the grain of salt who gives a fuck what 35 year old man thinks about the twilight yeah you know who cares but you know i don't know who could come across well in those movies just for the writing's sake but robert Pattinson, you obviously come out and do stuff like high life and lighthouse and he's fucking great in those movies right um he's bad in this he's not good I was shocked how bad his performance was in this. I was embarrassed. Like, I was like, what the fuck? Tom Holland's fine. You know, I mean, he's doing okay. Um, not sure if he's right for the role. Uh, Sarsgaard, great actor. I don't think he's right for the role. It's just, I just don't care for this. Like, it's mean-spirited and everything like that, but it just also comes across as bullshit to me. It comes across as, you know, like Hollywood Jack Ketchum and bad Hollywood Jack Ketchum. And I know, I don't know if this writer was before Jack Ketchum around the same time, if this book is super well-respected or anything like that. And a lot of people love this. People that I, I love their opinions on movies that we always usually agree on it, they are eating this up. This is not for me. I'm sorry. It's not. Um, it's just every bad thing possible could happen, and then they keep doing it to prove a point. And it's just, at that point, you don't give a shit. It's just very fast-paced, too. It's two hours and 18 minutes, but they try to, like, they cram everything in. By the time you're like, and then she got cancer, and then she killed herself, and then she found out she was pregnant, and the baby actually started the AIDS virus, and then the AIDS virus caused the world pandemic, and everyone died. And then it's just, I'm exaggerating, but it's to the point where it's just like, okay, what the fuck ever. I mean... They do like bring they they drop a lot of things and they come back into play, but uh, you know it just it's not really my thing. Like and, and you know I'm not one of these people that gets upset about like you know evil Americana movies and stuff. I feel like I like a lot of you know Stephen King stuff that has that old style Americana feel to it, and then just a bunch of underlining shit underneath. You know I like that stuff. That's that I do love this stuff, and there's some storylines in here that are decent, um, and everything like that, and it does all tie together. And there's some people that are good. The guy the guy who played Bobo I thought was pretty good I thought he was a fun character actor type that was definitely cast right but like whatever happened to the American character actor are they dead they're all old we have old ones still but I just feel like you know I I, I just know it's an old man get off my lawn thing I miss I miss it you know it's just sorely miscast it's well directed. It's well set designed. It's, the score is pretty good. I mean, it has like this motif music or not anymore, just music going throughout the entire movie. That's very, you know, theme and everything like that, which I don't hate. It's just this one doesn't work for me. And I, and I hate it. I do not like it at all. 
I, I, I think it's horseshit. But hey, I mean, this is my opinion. And that's why the first time I tried to watch it, I got 20 minutes into it. And I was like, this isn't for me. I have no reason to talk about it because why be negative? But since it's a Patreon pick, I don't really have a choice. Um, I think the script's kind of dog shit. And I think it's horribly miscast. And it, it's to the point where I, I don't care. Like, I, I, and I think that I can't think of the actress's name, but the one who is uh, traveling with the guy from the Pet Cemetery remake, I can't think of his name. He's also one of the Terminator movies, but she's really, she's solid in it. I think she does a good job. And it's not like Tom Holland's offensively bad. He's just miscast. Same thing with Zarsgaard. I do think Patson's offensively bad in this. Like, what the, f- it's just crummy. Um, and some of the older actors in here playing the roles aren't too bad. But like I said, this movie's so on the nose. It's just so, so basic, bitch. Like, type of movie where you could just finish the lines for him. Um, that's the devil all the time. I know a lot of people like it. Um, just watch some old, you know, 60s or 70s movies. You know, like The Chase, which somebody gave me for Patreon. Watch that instead. That's much better. Not too similar, but better. Or watch The Loss by Jack Ketchum. Watch that one instead. I think it's better. Okay, now we're going to hop into those 1980 movies. They did this to you! They're trying to turn us against each other! Just look at them! What do they know about friendship, anyway? I'll get them. You watch. I'll take care of those sons of bitches. Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good lord! It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. It must have something to do with some obscure sexual writer. With the almost profound respect... Getting very careless. Blood in your hair. What will we do? You want to look pretty, don't you? Pretty for me. I can't believe you're not afraid. All you have to do is piss on it. Could he care blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. You'll never come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. Evil. Gone, my leg. Gone, my leg. I'm here. You're here. There's a bug bank out there. Messenger of God, you don't we just stay here. Demanding everything, including blood. John, I want this material burned. All of it. Right the fuck 
in. <laughs> well, Dad, are you proud of me now? Do I measure up? Huh? My son, my son was a son of a bitch, and he was no good. That's it. My son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. Oh, see me. You're gonna die. He didn't find any boy. Well, you know as well as I do, it takes all kinds of critters to, to make, make farmer mints and fritters. <laughs> I wonder who the real cannibals are. All right, the first 1980 movie is a doozy. It's the first time watched, believe it or not, even though it's got my uh, my my brother in here, uh, George Eastman. This is directed by Joe Diamato, and you know what that means? It means it's Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, basically a porno, but uh, I can't even show the back because there's nudity on the back. This is the Code Red Blu-ray release. Uh, yeah, this is 1980. I had actually never seen this one, like I said. Um, Joe D'Amato had a few movies this year. Uh, what else was the other one? Uh, Black Magic and Sex, and of course, Anthropophagus. And I'm sure he probably had a dozen other movies because Joe D'Amato is the man. He directs movies nonstop. So, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. So, I just had this image stuck in my head where I couldn't stop laughing. Where uh, I say, imagine Joe D'Amato coming into like a producer's and he's just like, I have an idea. And then he's like, Yeah, what is it, Joe? Um, have you already seen Fulci Zombie? I don't. I know it's racist to do the Italian directors like that, but I can't help it. Fulci Zombie. He's like, yeah, Joe. I think I did see that one. All right, Fulci Zombie, but it's a porno. Yeah, that's basically kind of what we have here. In the very beginning, we have this like kind of uh, this this like wraparound story, this framing device story, basically with George Eastman and you know somebody else. They're boning. He's in an insane asylum, and you know George Eastman looks crazy. Looks like you know from absurd or something like that. Um, and um, the other Jody Amato movie with George Eastman about it. But anyways, uh, then we kind of like have uh, him cut to an island. He's on this island. He gets hired by, uh, who is it, uh, Mark something. Oh, this guy, Mark Shannon. Um, and his girlfriend, his newly acquired girlfriend, um, to kind of go to this island. And I, I think he wants to, like, buy it or some shit. I don't remember his motives. They get there, and Laura Gemsher's there, you know, Jody Amato regular, Black Emmanuel herself. And she's sort of some sort of, like, mystical character. She has visions and everything like that. And there's an old African-American man there as well. And there's zombies kind of stalking this island. Like I said, it's zombie, right? Um, we even have, like, but here we have porno scenes that the movie completely stops. We have, like, a threesome, like we have people like there's cum shots there's all this kind of stuff right sex scenes the sex scenes don't last as long as you'd think but yeah um george eastman's definitely not getting down for real he never removes his pants during his sex scenes but mark shannon is down to clown obviously this movie has an infamous joke about um him having genital warts on his testicles uh yeah so it is what it is you can see uh white bumps on his balls whatever okay uh it's 1980 and it's a porno jody amato porno with zombies in it just you'll be all right um so so anyways like the zombies in the movie kind of like just rise from the sands like in a la zombie and they're like in like kind of like cloaks or whatever and they just wander towards people and and george eastman has this strange you know little like i don't know what you call it like a little statue to protect him and all this kind of stuff um yeah I, I don't know what to say about Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. I enjoy the music. There's a lot of laugh-out-loud moments, especially involving a cat's meowing. It's just completely over the top, this black cat. It's like, it'd just be walking, and it'd be like, 
they'll add the sound in, kind of like uninvited by Grade and Clark. Like when the cat's like in the truck and it's falling down, you just hear these loud, ferocious meows that are clearly uh, overdubbed. Um, this cat's very the most overdubbed cat besides the uninvited cat, I would say. But uh, yeah, e- Eastman's fine in it. Uh, always like George Eastman, of course. Laura Gemsher, plenty of nudity, plenty of sex, uh, plenty of dong, um, whatever you want to see. It's here in Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. Um, I thought some of the zombies were fun. Um, I enjoyed them, not gonna lie. Um, there's some gore gags in here. Um, decent special effects, actually, for what like, you don't really know if you're gonna get them, and they're they're not too bad. Um, and I enjoyed this a lot more than I should. I, what can I say? I guess I'm a pervert. So get your pervert card out for Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. Have some fun with the Black Emmanuel and George Eastman and Joe D'Amato. It won't disappoint. You know exactly what you're getting into. Um, this fucking thing is almost two hours long, though, so make sure you don't blow your load in the first 30 minutes because there's more zombie action and action to come. Okay, the next one from 1980 is the directorial debut of Lamberto Baba, son of Mario Baba. This is Macabre, a.k.a. Frozen Tear. And uh, did this one make the video nasties list? I always make, I always mix it up. This is the 88 Films release. So, uh, yeah. Um, this movie is a little bit different than some of Bava's other stuff, like Blast Fighter or Demons. Uh, it's I, I wouldn't even say it's in line with Blade in the Dark. It's kind of its own thing. It's, it's like a psychological thriller horror film. So, essentially what we have here is this woman. She's married to an older man. And she leaves her kids alone. One, one's very young, a toddler. And his her, her daughter leaves him alone while she... She says she has work to do, but she's really going and having an affair. Um, essentially, what happens is the little sister, the, the daughter, drowns her little brother in the bathtub very horribly um, to get revenge on the mother. And while they're rushing back, her and her lover, there's a car accident that decapitates him in gory detail. She ends up getting sent away to a mental institution, and when she finally gets out, she basically goes back to her old, you know, kind of house where she would have an affair, and the room upstairs is still available. It's been held by this blind man who is infatuated with her, who knows kind of some of the past and everything like that. So essentially, she's living there, and she has a secret in her freezer. Anybody that's heard anything about this movie should know what the secret is. Um, This movie involves some really crazy, taboo subjects, of course, Um, and there's a lot of kind of like weird play between the blind guy and her um, and him, what he does know. But what's really nuts is the daughter being basically like a serial killer, not a serial killer, but just a horrible, vicious maniac. And there's a lot of moments between her and the daughter and everything and the kids visiting. And the ending is as one of those memorable endings that uh, could, could match pieces, right? If anybody's ever seen pieces. So this is a pretty good movie. Um, I know a lot of people do enjoy it probably more than me, but I, I dug it. Um, it it's got a nasty like storyline in there like a story point that's just like a little bit taboo a little bit crazy for 1980 as it's before a lot of the other ones too actually you know there was one i think that would be before this a joe diamato movie one year before actually and i'm sure there's other ones too but in this kind of vein the italian ones bit different so as far as the special features are concerned we have it uh you can watch it italian or english um don't lose your head a new interview with director lamberto bava audio commentary by giallo experts troy harworth and nathaniel thompson which i did listen to and that's very good they enjoy the movie they do most definitely point out the ridiculous louisiana accents which are uh, everybody's overdubbed with they're like i don't know it's nonsense but it's fun um yeah this one's pretty cool and uh, i think i had seen this before i just don't know if i'd seen the entire movie i watched it when it came out on dvd from 
from Anchor Bay years back. Now I finally watched the entire thing of Macabre. You know how that goes when you're really young. Sometimes you don't remember everything or you saw part of it, never finished it. But uh, yeah, anyways, uh, th- there's some a couple of good reveals here, although I'm pretty sure most of it's been spoiled for everybody probably at this point. Okay, the next one up here is Alien 2 on Earth. This is the Midnight Legacy release. 88 films uh, went on to put it out in, in the UK and stuff like that. No, this is Midnight Legacy. I think this is their only release. I think they had more planned. This came out a few years back, um, maybe like eight or nine, and it's been out of print ever since. But then again, like I said, we have the release from 88 films as well. So Alien 2 on Earth. <laughs> you gotta love it, right? This has nothing to do with Alien. In fact, I think that the people who made Alien, you know, uh, Fox or Ridley Scott or somebody was trying to sue them because of it. But in court, of course, from my understanding, is that they could not sue because there was a novel from the 30s called Alien, and I guess they're claiming this is a sequel to alien the novel alien 2 on earth yada 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 although i read a little tidbit uh trivia that the one of the filmmakers behind this movie tried to sue the descent for similarities and it's like fuck off after what you just did but um yeah this is obviously a cash in and uh as far as other movies from this year i'd say it shares the most dna with something like contamination by luigi kazi which is also kind of a cash in on alien so here we go um, so Alien 2, this the only actor I really know uh, off the top of my head that some look familiar and everything, they pop up in a couple genre films is, but Michele Suave is, is anybody that watches a lot of these, you'll recognize him right away. He's in the slew, he's became a director, yada, yada, yada. So in the very beginning, we have like a, a, I think a satellite or a ship crash back down to earth and there's a lot of news footage and it's cut through and it's just like stock footage, whatever. That's like poorly done and, and kind of weird. And then we also have like the psychic lady who's going to the rock, like kind of like a splunking thing in a cave and yada 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 and on the way basically she's having like premonitions or whatever you know how this goes so one of her friends finds this weird pulsating blue rock puts it in his pack and they go into the cave and that that rock ends up being you know an alien and it kind of attacks him in the cave which is strange it's funny you think they would find the alien in the cave but they have the space element here that they you know crash finds to earth but they actually bring the creature to the fucking cave from my understanding and that's what comes to life and attacks them and you know the cave is like kind of a, a poor um like replacement for the ship um, what is it called? The is it called the Nostradamus an alien oh, and the Iraq is a poor replacement for the egg so there we go um what I do like about the movie is that there is some fun, gory deaths. The monster looks ridiculous. There's a monster point of view, which is fun. Um, it does take a little long to happen, like 45 minutes, I think, before someone gets attacked by the monster. But when they do, they get messed up. There's a really fun scene where somebody's hanging upside down and their head's kind of like squeezed off and it falls through. That's cool. Also, being in the cave is absolutely terrifying. And the idea of them actually bringing the fucking monster into the cave with them is, from, as far as what I gathered, is pretty crazy. Um, yeah, anyways, it ends on a really dystopian note. Um, it's okay. It's really cheesy. It's uh, so blatant that you're kind of like, eh, you know, and it's not as constantly entertaining as something like Hell of the Living Dead that came out this time. So yeah, basically the special features are special effects outtake and HD and Dutch VHS trailer. So we don't have too much here. It is in English. So there we go. Um, Alien 2 on Earth. Uh, no relation to Alien. That's, that's very funny to me though. Yeah. Okay. The next one from 1980 is Stigma or Stigma directed by Jose Ramon Larraz, who who did stuff like Symptoms, Vampires, Coming of Sin, Whirlpool. Very good director. And uh, this stars uh, Christian uh, Bolmero, who is in stuff that people recognize like Tenenbrae and House on the Edge of the Park from this year as well. So Stigma, this this movie, uh, this release also comes with uh, uh, another film on there by um, uh, Jose Emma Pertos Obscuras. Um, I didn't watch that one, but this is from El Dorado Films, which... Uh, 
basically is, is no longer there. You might be able to send them a private message and buy some stuff on Facebook or something along those lines, but I don't think they're putting anything new out. But Stigma. So yeah, this is kind of a, a um, you know, a Carrie style story, I guess you'd put that way. So Christian Bolmero is the main guy, but he's also the villain, really, which is kind of crazy. And um, essentially, uh, you, you kind of realize that this family has some messed up stuff going on. The father recently just died and you learn that he's a psychic fairly quick when he tries to like grope this. He has like telepathy, a tel- telekinesis. Sorry about that. Not telepathy. Maybe he has both. Who knows? And he tries uh, early in the beginning. You realize he's, he's a monster when he tries to grope this girl on the Brit on this like stairway and she refuses him. And then he basically makes her jump off this thing and she's end up dead on the bottom. And uh, basically as the movie progresses, you know, more and more people, People upset him and anyone who upsets him, he can't control themselves and he has them off, including family members. And it comes down to him and this, uh, this, uh, the, you know, the girlfriend of his brother that start kind of like, I don't want to say relationship, but he thinks so at this point. But, uh, the ending of this movie is really the knockout. I thought it was quite good. You know, he says, you know, whenever he gets upset, he just looks at somebody he can't stand and, you know, or stares at him or thinks about him. And that's kind of what he does is stares at them until they kill themselves or have a tragic accident. So like the there's that, you know, it has a Patrick element as well. But uh, yeah, it, it's just like the ending was just made me actually really appreciate the film as well. Um, this one I said is pretty interesting. They do have some like backstory on the family that we have like a flashback and all this kind of stuff. I thought it was pretty good. Um, better than I thought it was going to turn out. You know, at first I was like, this will be okay. But then by the end, I was like, that ending kind of made up for it. And I, I was kind of impressed with it. Just a really bleak, dark ending. And this actor I, I have some interest in because of the two previous movies I mentioned he's in. So uh, yeah, um, anyways, it, the, the print doesn't look great, but it, it looks pretty solid. I mean, it just looks like it's from a, a you know a film print or anything like that. Probably not the direct negatives, and it looks a little beat up. Nothing that will knock your socks off. But you get two movies on there, and I know there is some bootlegs floating around of this one as well. But anyways, as some collector stuff in here, it is region free if you still end up getting the disc. And I'm I'm glad I did pick it up. I guess it's a limited 157 of 700. Strange number to limit it to. But anyways, uh, check out Stigma. It's nice. It's not the best or not the worst, but it's pretty solid from 1980. Okay, the next one here is partially directed by Gary Graver, and who else did this one? George Edwards. And this is from 1980, of course, is The Attic, starring um, uh, Carrie Snod- Sodgrass and Ray Milan, of course. So this one, um, I wonder, why is it sealed? I watched it online, okay? That, that DVD I've had for like 20 years. It's still sealed. It's worth a lot of money. I'm leaving it sealed. I know that's stupid, but that's the way I'm going to do. So uh, um, anyways, it came out with Crawl Space on the MGM uh, Midnight Double Feature releases. Those used to be really awesome. I used to pick all those up good prices so this one i didn't really know what to expect i'd seen the cover years years ago um but i didn't know it was gonna be this kind of meal uh, this kind of film sorry meal i must be hungry i am hungry so i love these kind of psychological horror films that follow around a real damaged character and you kind of get in their psyche and, and see what what they're gonna do and all this kind of stuff like i bring up a lot of references like the witch who came from the sea dream no evil i like these movies i think that they're really effective um even psycho right so uh boy uh, Carrie Sodgrass. She's an actress that I've seen in other things, but I didn't register who she was. But right when she popped up, she's like this kind of mousy librarian, but she just looks so haunted. I looked at her and her, her posture, the way she moved around, the way she interacted with everyone. I was, I was impressed with the performance right away. And I just thought it was as top notch. So she's basically this mousy librarian who's a, is an alcoholic. And every time somebody brings up, I don't drink much. I don't drink much. She's always sneaking drinks and shit. I love that little character type. But anyways, basically 
She takes care of her father, who's in a wheelchair, and Ray Milan. Ray Milan's in lots of classic movies, but he's also in some really off-the-wall horror films, you know, in the 70s and 80s, like The Uncanny or The Sea Serpent. Ray Milan's always a solid, good actor, and I enjoy watching him. He's great in this. He's a complete and utter asshole. Um, so essentially, she's just very lonely. Um, you learn that on the day of her wedding, her husband, her fiancé, disappeared completely. And you learn a lot of this because she is best friends with this other librarian who's taking her job. She's no longer going to be employed at this library. And like, you almost feel like there's going to be a lesbian relationship or like, or on requital love. Like she'll, the, like Carrie's going to love this woman. She's going to deny her. It's going to send her into a tailspin, whatever. But that's not the case. I like to kind of, that it turned this way because we have so many of these movies, right? Where somebody was obsessed with somebody, all this kind of stuff. And they're not, the other person's not interested, but it kind of went in a different aspect. So it like focuses on a lot of, you know, like uh, her, her just moments out and about like, and her trying to help her friend genuinely. And of course, relationship between her and her father so there's this point where she goes out and she ends up getting picked up by this sailor and this whole like her whole demeanor and performance and how she sits next to this it's just it was really well done and just the whole situation awkward like at points you're you're absolutely feel terrified or terrible for her, but you're terrified of her because you know something's gonna something's gonna snap so um she ends up picking up this monkey, which like she loves monkeys. I think it's just stuffed animals and stuff. And that's the cover art was the you know the um the the monkey with the, the chimes, the symbols, the symbols, and, and that was the cover. And that's like always like an iconic, supposedly scary thing, right? Monkey shines uses the cover. There was the Stephen King story, I believe, the monkey or whatever had one, uh, short story. So so that's the cover, and like that is in there in the beginning. But I guess it pertains more to that she ends up going and buying a chimpanzee at a pet store. And you know Ray Milan obviously hates the chimp, but he's constantly bitching and nagging her and and whatnot and this monkey is just as chimpanzees running around and everything like that and and like the, what happens to the chimpanzee and the reveal at the end with the attic is also really great and kind of kind of predictable but it has to be that way i think um so like i i really enjoyed this one and it's really basically due to the performances and all that kind of stuff and, and just the weird melancholy sadness about the entire movie um, so like picking up a monkey is, is just very funny to me. I had, I had another point, uh, that I was going to say, and it was involved with, you know, uh, her, her picking up that monkey, uh, buying the monkey and everything. Like, it's just insane that someone would do that in the first place and just bring a chimpanzee home. I would not be very happy about it as well. But uh, there is some creep show elements as well, which came out two years later, you know, where the character uh, carries constantly fantasizing about killing her father, you know, like, and then like it will snap to reality and see what really happens about it. But uh, anyways, I, I just thought this was much better than expected. You know, I didn't really expect too much. I thought maybe a two and a half, a three out of five or something. I, I'm more of a three and a half. And I just due to the performances and everything like that. Uh, so so if this sounds like it's up your alley, psychological horror films, you know, you know, people being trauma when they're young and it's just messing them up forever, that kind of stuff. Then then check this one out it's it's pretty good okay the next one here is one from shaw brothers and this is hex vs witchcraft and i believe this is a loose sequel to hex uh this came out the same year um yeah this was more of a comedic film directly comedic and we kind of open up in the beginning with like this goofball which kind of reminds me of like spooky encounters of the first kind a lot of these like shaw brothers movies were like you have these kind of goons even though spooky encounters is not a shaw brothers movie but you get what i'm saying i think it's probably gold harvest if i'm not mistaken but anyways you have these like kind of goofy characters always trying to get rich fast scheme ones here 
and this is kind of hex versus witchcraft. It's more modern. It's a, it's not a period piece. So this guy um, is an absolute sleazeball. He's you see him, he's basically just going through and losing tons and tons of money until the point where he is basically so indebted that he offers up his wife to this stranger that uh, he sleeps with her one night, and he pulls this fast one where he's going to turn off the lights. He's a real scummy piece of shit. Um, it backfires, and now basically he is on the run from this mobster. Somebody offers him an opera, uh, you know, an opportunity that uh, he's going to marry this guy's dead daughter, so he'll be married to a ghost. Yada yada yada. He doesn't think much of it. Come to find out, he is married to the ghost, and uh, shenanigans ensue until he starts to use her to help him, you know, win and you know poker and all this stuff. And the big showdown, of course, is. Witchcraft vs. Hex. I guess you could say it that way. And there's a big poker showdown with supernatural elements and everything like that. There's some weird slapsticky comedy, of course, of the ghost jumping at different people's bodies and trying to sleep with him. And, you know, sometimes they're not the most, uh, you know, attractive people to him that he wants to sleep with. But you get all sorts, you know, you get an old lady, you get an old man with this voice of, you know, his wife. Um, it, it's goofy. Sometimes it's funny. It wears out its welcome. Uh, you kind of are done with it about after 30, 30, 45 minutes. You're like, I've had enough of Hex vs. Witchcraft. I don't love it. It was okay. Um, I did laugh in the beginning. I thought it had a good energy about it. And I do kind of like the concept, I guess. Um, it just didn't work 100% for me. I prefer Hex a little bit more than it. So, yeah, it's Hex versus Witchcraft. Okay, and the last one from 1980 is going to be the Carpathian Eagle from the Hammer House of Horse. Um, starting the second disc. I'm almost done with the second. I think there's only a couple I hadn't watched on the second disc. I don't know why I have to tell you guys that. But, okay, so the Carpathian Eagle. This would be a quick one. Uh, what we have here is this um, killer going around, this beautiful woman going around and killing people in this ritualistic way. A police detective gets on it. He starts to figure it out. On the news, he hears, or basically a radio show, he hears this uh, kind of historian, this person who's working on the book, talk about the methods of, you know, that this person that they're researching killed. It matches the M.O. of, you know, the victims. So he starts to interview her, finds like this last family lineage of the person that this this writer is writing about in the book. The, they don't really ever try to hide the twist. There's a couple possibilities here and there. But then after a while, it's kind of obvious where the twist is. So this movie, like, like probably could have used a little bit longer in method if you wanted to have that twist have any reveal to it. Um, there is some nudity in here, which is not always the case in a Hammer House of Horrors, but it does happen a couple times. And, you know, there's a couple decent murder scenes. It's not horrible. It's decent. I like the lead performance of the female. I think she does a really good job, and they're setting it up for a sequel here. It's okay. It, it's it's kind of run-of-the-mill of the Hammer House of Horrors. Uh, yeah, check it out. I, I enjoyed it to a certain extent. Uh, yeah, Carpathian Eagle. All right, we're here for uh, Blind Spot. This is your pick. What was this thing called again? Kizumonokatari. Part three. It has mm -hmm. a little thing afterwards. I don't remember what that little thing is know. called. Uh, yeah, this is the conclusion of it. This one was about an hour and 22 minutes, a little longer than some of the mm -hmm. other ones. So the second one ended with um, basically our hero like squaring off against the human, the last, the vampire hunter. And essentially that... The, that's the battle. Like I expected it to open up with like the big battle for that guy, but that's like the whole battle is like an end credit sequence. So this one kind of changes pace and kind of focuses on some other things. And what was the main vampire lady's name? Kind of focuses Heart more with her. Under Blade Kish. There we go. That's why you're something. saying it. <laughs> so it kind of focuses with her and the relationship with, of course, our lead character. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and the class president. And the class president. So, I mean, those are the three major characters. Yeah. And we kind of have a reveal of one of the characters' ulterior motives and everything like that. And a very, 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 very Japanese ending. So, uh, yeah, the, the main highlight in this and the majority of the movie is the giant fight scene between the, the vampire to her full power. 
mm-hmm. aunt, uh, are basically servant to her. And that fight scene's extremely gory. Limbs, heads get knocked off, regeneration, all that kind of stuff. Basically, uh, Kishat, you know, Aragi has, like, the same, like, regenerative power that Kishat has. So so they're really just, like, hacking each other bit yeah. by bit and just regrowing. And it, everything's just, like, exaggerated, like, decapitation, limb ripping. Um, basically, yeah, so, so once Kish, so the main character, once he gets all of her parts, um, to bring her to her full power, he's like, well, cool, I can become a human, but then there's still going to be vampires, and he Well, he, he starts, he has this dumb realization that she was feeding on people this entire time, killing people, right. so that's what makes him upset. He's way too heroic. Just, <coughs> just let, turn back to human, go live your life, and let the vampire kill a couple people. Right. I mean, I would. You? Right, and, and that's what they say. I mean, it's nature, you know, it's, it's animals, or people eat animals, vampires eat people. I mean... That's just how it's going to be. So, but then he has like the moral dilemma, like, you know, if I lose my power, I can't stop her. But then I'm doomed to, you know. Of course, the only way that he can actually become human again is to defeat her. Of course, which is something that she wanted all along. Is she wanted? Well, you want to spoil it? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind yeah. of we a won't lot of spoil. The, we a won't lot of the vampires it. have this obvious, you know, they've been wandering the earth too long. They're right. tired. You know, they just want to. You know, to go to sleep. So this one I thought was pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. I think the second one's probably the best. I think this is better than the first one. Just because the fight scenes are really and more impressive and gory and stuff. And like I said, the ending is one of those things where it's just like... It's it's like... it's. I was like, I don't know how to explain this, but this is like a super Japanese ending. Like servitude and, and loyalty and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, without spoiling it, one of the characters says, um, Look, there's no way for everybody to be happy. But there is a way for everybody to be miserable, and we'll just go that route. Yeah, get a jab. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, um, and still, it, it never fully resolves the love story between class president and him. Like, they're still, like, in that childish stage and everything like that. Oh, and this one has nudity, which kind of surprised yeah, me. Yeah, this one does, yeah. Like, I don't know, the show's weird. Like, there's gore and, like, a sense of, like, playfulness, but... It's never, like, it feels like it's still made for kids, so this one, it's still, like, you're like, no, not this one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird, like, uh, the main character and the class present, like, they are, like, coming to terms of, like, their sexuality and, like, exploring, like, you know, finding love, um, and, and there is, like, kind of a drawn-out scene where they're kind of playing with that, um, it doesn't really go anywhere, I... I, I don't know. It's it's meh. And the, the nudity is, like, like super exaggerated in this, too. It's, of course. Of yeah. course. I mean, her breasts are bouncing up the entire time. Right, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's the anime cliche of, like, you know... Schoolgirl. Opai. Japanese schoolgirl, yeah. Is it, what's it called? Opai. It's bosom. <laughs> uh, I, I would give this, like, a three and a half, a four, somewhere around there. You know, it's a typical... I mean, more like a three and a half. Like, uh, these aren't really my thing, but I enjoyed the entire thing, if that makes any sense. It's hard to rate this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, this one, like, I liked... I, I love the, like, the kiss shot battle, um, and I actually like the uh, scene of them kind of, like, hanging out and, like, her giving her backstory about her first servant. Yeah. Um, that was awesome with the oh, samurai. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but just a lot of neat stuff in this and neat anim- animation. I, I'd probably give like this movie like standalone like probably a four. This series overall probably honestly a four. Um, I, I was always curious because like like the animation always re- looked really neat. I like yeah. the style. Um, you know, I've been watching it. It's very 
the way it's presented is I I think kind of neat. It's it's different than like what you're used to watching. And I guess there's more too, like um, not with these characters, but I guess there's like diff because these are based off of light novels. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's like a few different series, a few different Was characters. The same characters coming back. I don't know if it's the same characters. I was looking at like some some like videos and, and like I can't tell if it's supposed to be kiss shots or like a different version of her or a different interpretation. I didn't like look that much into it. Um but I do know that there are different light novels and different anime adaptions. I just, you know, I Japanese media is kind of hard to delve into because it's let's see you. Because you, you you get like the light novel, then you get the manga, then you get like the OVA, then... and none of them ever get finished. Right, none of them get finished. <laughs> then you get the movie, then the TV show, then the reboot, then the live action movie, then the live action. And it's like I, and and it, it's kind of why I stopped watching anime in, in the first place. It's like like this is way too expensive and way too time consuming to dump all this effort into consuming this media, and everything's so sparse and disconnected. It, it's why i stopped watching adventure brothers because it just like made a new season or a new episode like every six years and i was just like i don't remember what happened last well time. yeah adventure brothers it, it just took a very long That's time to anime, get to but you know what I mean. um but but in the case of of this it's like well yeah you, you watch the three movies and, and, the, and the you know it looked on a cliffhanger and then the next uh thing that's coming out is a complete reboot based off of not the manga but you know the 1920s radio radio serial and it's like hi okay you know i don't i don't want to do this anymore so what'd you give it um oh i gave it like a four overall a four okay so here we go Mm -hmm. i didn't pick a movie i usually have it picked i I wasn't thinking so i'm looking over here Uh you ever seen wreck sure have you wait is wreck uh quarantine the American, the original version, though. Yeah, we've seen both. Okay. I haven't seen the quarantine. Oh, Have I've seen quarantine. Have you seen The Howling? Anyway. Yes, we've watched The Howling. You've never seen The Howling. I think we watched The yeah, Howling. American War for London. This is the same thing. No, it's not. We're Isn't good. Christopher Lee in Howling 3? He's in Howling 2. Howling 2. And he hates it. Hates Your it. sister is a werewolf. What about, um... Let's do Howling. I'm fairly certain I've seen Howling. You've not seen Howling. Hmm... I remember watching Fine. a werewolf We're movie. We're gonna do this right now. Well, you didn't watch it with me because I haven't watched the Howling in 15, 20 years. Well, okay. you weren't. I wasn't in Panama, I guess. <laughs> Alone in the dark. You want to watch it? Yes. No. Okay. American Gothic. I've not He's seen just it. going in alphabetical yep. order. What, what a piece doing. of shit. American Gothic. Never seen it. Rudd Steiger. I don't know what that is. I think it's like a slasher esque movie, but Rudd Steiger. Look at the cover. No, I don't want to watch that. <laughs> um, uh, you don't want to watch that. Let's go. Um, Big Trouble in Little China. That's it. How long is that? Shut up. You made me watch some long-ass movie last week. Um, last week? No, it was an, uh, an hour and 20 minutes. We're watching Big Trouble in Little China. I got to sneeze. We're watching. <laughs> what is it? I was waiting. It's the John Carpenter one. No, how long is it? I don't know. Probably normal length. What do you mean normal length? 100 minutes. Well, I was waiting for a 4K. I think there's an overseas one, but that'll do. All right, we're watching Big Trouble in Little China. I'm going to sneeze. Then sneeze. It's over. We're We're, done. Big Trouble in Little China. Okay, we'll see you next week. We're all probably being in a little pissy mood. (laughs) 
All right. Bye. Group. All right. Let's get into these questions, comments, concerns, all that stuff. Last week I asked you the most uh, funny or, or, or ridiculous, um, like a mess up in a film you've ever seen. So also people are just commenting on the videos. Read that all together. Tempo Tapas in the description of the video. The time codes for Hex and He Knows You're Alone are reversed. I've never seen them. Thank you. I fixed that. Um, I've never seen The Last Hunter, but if you're looking for an Italian war film that's less fun, exploitation, more tragic drama then try the skin i've not heard of that one what year is the skin i mean i can look it up too i have the internet apparently uh a lot of people always do that to you when you ask a question i was like look it up you got some so anyways um david leather original anaconda where the run waterfall is running backwards that's how they, they you don't know when you film a waterfall they go backwards just kidding the red room i love bloody muscle bodybuilder in hell i bought the ridiculous version that came with the dumbbell <laughs> is it actually a dumbbell that's awesome um, Bed Masters, another great show from Luigi Montefiore's Long Lost Brother. Thank you, George Eastman for life. Um, Mike Adu, Obey. In Trick or Treat 1986, the director's reflection is in the television when Ragman is watching the news about Sammy Kerr. Floatech Entertainment, just to just the point on Inferno not doing well when initially released, at least from the U.S. side. Um, when Fox released Inferno, it was five years after the release in Italy, and it was horribly butchered down to only 80 minutes long, meaning that nearly half an hour of material was left on the cutting room floor for the U.S. release. Based on knowing that alone, it doesn't surprise me to know that Inferno didn't do well due to that. D. Gallic, LOL, Pickle Bucket. Yeah, I still don't know what the fuck a Pickle Bucket is. Alright. trying to turn a page with one hand. Fucking Bob Seeger over here. Wait a minute. Um... There we go. RB, well, Plan 9 from Outer Space was full of them, but that's what gave the movie its fame and charm. One of the most famous is Wizard of Oz Dorothy's slippers changed from red to black and back to red in the fight scene with the tree. Nick Mua, um, first off, thanks for the birthday wish. It warms the heart. As for blatantly funny movie mistakes... One and Disney's classic The Sword in the Stone, soon to be King Arthur's voice, not to mention his accent keeps changing. Magic, I guess. Two, the Velociraptor kitchen scene: a crew member can be spotted giving one of the raptors a hand as she enters the said kitchen. You mean the Jurassic Park, I assume? Taking place in the 80s, a victim of Ralph uh, finds um, the Tooth Fairy has 1993's Mrs. Doubtfire on VHS. Does Frank the Bunny have something to do with this? Donnie Darker reference. Questions. Since the U.S. slashers often feature high school cliches and stereotypes, I'm curious which cliche was Mr. Parker a member of? Click. Sorry. Click. Not stereotypes. Um, not really any. To be honest. You know, it wasn't super popular, but I wasn't, you know, I had friends. I wasn't really into any. Um, I would say I had any. I wasn't really into any. If you weren't a slasher, which uh, clique would you be a part of? Um, if I was in a slasher. See, that's the thing. is like a lot of these are forced. Like in a lot of the old slasher movies, there's just a group of friends hanging out and it wasn't there. So like that's like been redefined in like these 90s movies that are self-aware. I mean, like I assume they are in the 80s to a certain extent, but it's not so much over the top right i guess um i guess if i were to play a character i'd probably be like one of the goons of the bully i think that like background of buddy repertin's friend and christine or something um i wouldn't be that character but you know what i'm just saying Ho, oh, uh would you convince jeremy to how would you convince jeremy to watch psycho clock of orange style surprising him in the shower dress as norma pay, pay him he'll just watch it because i'll pick it eventually um hope all the rain we're getting here doesn't reach you 
Uh, D. Gullick, Offerings is deaf worth a watch. Love the channel. Thank you. Ken Coakley, have you seen a lot of the films? Um, have you seen a lot of the films from Amicus, America's Film Institute Top 100 list? I especially wonder if you saw the first two Godfather movies. I've seen Godfather 1, of course. Richard Conte, who made a big career in Italian crime films, plays Don Barzini, who is Vito Corleone's rival. The Godfather Part 2, Gaston Motion, played a local gangster that young Vito ended up killing. Motion was a comedy actor who switched gears and did Caliber 9 with Fernando De Leo. I'm pretty sure I've seen Caliber 9. Um, I have a couple mistakes from George Romero's Dead Trilogy. In Night of Living Dead, the lights are so bright that you can see the boom mics. Another famous love is when Ben is putting on his shoes and Barbara the radio announcer says, keep your homes boarded up. And Ben says, hey, that's us. It looks like we're doing all right. But the window in the back of him is completely unprotected. And Dawn at the WGON station, uh, Francine, calls Stephen by his real name, David. I remember that too. I noticed that when I saw it on the drive-in and thought the character was named David. Outside the horror genre, my all-time favorite film, The Godfather, has a famous flub. The first film takes place from 1946 to presumably 1954. Um, Michael, Al Pacino, arrives at the hospital in Las Vegas in the 50s, but if you look through the glass door, you can see two men who are people who are people who are hippies who have much wandered into the shot by accident, and Francis or Coppola must have thought it would go unnoticed. Was he ever wrong? Hippies from the future. That's my movie. Um, Eric Waters. The first thing that popped in my head was when Jennifer Jason Lee smashed an expensive guitar against a wall in Hateful Eight. Daryl Marsh. Eric Waters. That was Kurt Russell, but her reaction to it was said to be genuine. Um, yeah, Kim Johansson. Michael Caine's self-drying shirt and Jaws the Revenge. Eric Payson. I don't know if it's the funniest, but I just watched the movie Hellbender and all the characters getting drunk and the beer props clearly said non-alcoholic. Dustin Mills, the stormtrooper banging his head on the blast door in Star Wars and the special editions, they added a bonk sound effect. Uh, Kaylee Gray. Dustin Mills, this is my answer too. LOL. Lucas Tout, where a character shoots a revolver and you still hear shell casings hitting the ground. Um, William Adcock, the Black Panther leader in Black Dynamite, reading his stage directions out loud as part of his lines. Lacey Liu. In the original Nightmare on Elm Street, you can see Freddy clearly hiding right behind, he, uh, right before he pops out to grab Tina. Once you notice, it'll definitely take away from the scare factor. Michael Church, intentional, but the boom mic swing and there's nothing out there is absolutely amazing. Ryan Vincent Logston, the extra who supposedly took his dick out in the last shot of Teen Wolf. Epic. Um, and then basically somebody says, is that visible? And Aaron Mazzola says, every movie ever made with bullets, going through water. Okay, let's get this. All these people posting myth, MythBuster stuff. I don't, I don't care. Um, so Mike Merriman and Killer Clowns. Originally, when the long-necked Killer Clown head pops out of the toilet to grab Debbie, you could see a portion of the guy's arm in the puppet. But I think with newer releases, they digitally cleaned it up. I will mention uh, Spookies. You can literally just see the puppeteer down there controlling the witch. Um, Joe Estrica, the little kid doing uh, the I Got a Pee dance at the end of Back to the Future 3 by the train. Tyler Harris, Samurai Cop, when Dude Wig flips, flies off, and they say fuck it and keep shooting the scene. Rebecca Reinhardt made everything in Samurai Cop. Maybe everything in Samurai Cop. Uh, Alexis Gonzalez, Goodfellas, when Paul Savino's character is smoking a cigar while debating about running a restaurant, the cigar disappears in one of the frames that follow. Scott Gladwin, in Bad Boys 83, during the climactic fight scene between Sean Penn and Issa Morales, the Steadicam operators are in plain sight filming in the middle of the pack of convicts cheering on the bra. Don't know how the editors missed that one. Jason Howard, that time they accidentally made Halloween kills. Okay. Sean Donahue, Boy in the Window, Three Men and a Baby. Bill Casanelli, and E.T., when the idiot... Elwin, idiot. Elliot runs into the barn. Another kid clearly mouths Henry Thomas. Next line. Something's out there. Michael Leach. The moment in the original Star Wars Episode Four where Obi Wan um, lightsaber goes out when he battles Darth Vader. It's the worst fight scene. And how did they 
How that didn't kill the franchise, I suppose I'll chalk it up to Jace kidding. Hello, it's the 70s. Dan Chase, he posts um, a link for How High. If it had not been for the Lord, line and How High, he clearly fubbed the line and they just went with it and it kept it in the movie. Uh, Justin Patrick, Nightmare City, the entire movie. Kaylee Gray, Nate, and I just watched Not of This Earth, and you can see the entire crew in the reflection of the car twice. Haha, <laughs> you can also see the boom mic right before that. Scott W. Davis, climactic shot of Carnival Souls, and a dead character is clearly blinking. John Soloway, casting Sherry Moon in films. Then casting again after she hasn't had acting lessons. Oh, God, sucking so tired of hearing about the Rob Zombie hate. You don't like him? Cool. But everything has to come back to Rob Zombie. Okay. Um, Cody Coleman, the car in Braveheart. Not really a mistake, but the fake baby in American Sniper. The guy wearing all denim holding up a tree while Gene Wyler dances through the candy forest in Willy Wonka. That was actually like uh, a pedophile that was in that movie they cut out. I'm just, I'm just kidding. But Zach Puccinelli, All the Human Return of Living Dead. So stupid. Uh, I love Return of Living Dead. And Zach just constantly talks about how bad it is. And then like straight up turds. Alexis Tamara Ware. Any law related movie where a prosecutor from Illinois is called the DA instead of the state attorney. State's attorney. Salvador Funkenstein. The part in the beyond where Warbeck loads the gun uh, wrong on the elevator. Also that fake mustache and the officer to end a sleepaway camp. Gotta have the fake mustache. Christopher Bickle. Very visible cameraman in Bad Boys 1983, of course. Herbert West. Sleepaway camp when the cop has the paper or drawn on mustache later in the movie. Herbert West. Scream 1996. When Cindy's dad falls out of the closet, you can see the crew member's hands in there. Okay. So this week's question of the week, since we had the funniest or most ridiculous mistakes in movies, what are the best happy accidents in films or last-minute changes that worked in a beneficial way? There we go. And uh, you know what? We're just going to do the Patreon and the uh, update right here because it's not very much. The update is the Tenenbrae um, 4K from Synapse Films. Got to love it. Um, love Tenenbrae, my favorite Dario movie. It's got a bunch of features on there. And, of course, it's 4 fucking K. Got to have Dario in 4K. His movies look gorgeous from this time frame. Um, so we're going to do the five Patreon picks to see what we got. Okay, first up is David Scott, Snatch, which I've never seen. Um, definitely going to watch that bad boy. What is coming up next? Uh, Jim Simon, The Wildlife, which I have. Uh, Chris Penn in that. Semi-sequel to Fast Times at Richmond High, if I'm not mistaken. So that's two, three. Chris Rivers, Bonnie and Clyde. Gotta love that. It's about time I watched that, right? That's three. Four here. Um, Dan the Cameraman, As Tears Go By, uh, As Tears Go By, 1988. Weird love list. Okay, he basically gave me a weird love list to choose from. I guess this is the one I'm choosing. I must have wrote it down for myself because I wouldn't have remembered. Um, that's four. Or maybe that's the name of the list from Letterboxd. I'll have to check it out. And the last one is Nick Mua, Fear Clinic. So there we go. Again, if you've been a patron for a while and you've not got your name drawn out in the last like three or four goes, let me know and I'll, I'll bump you ahead. Anyways, we're out of here. Going to cut to that, that outro and everything. See you. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching. As always, have a good one. Me. Nee.